Now on BBC One, Screen One presents an unusual and sometimes disturbing film marking Halloween. Over the centuries there have been countless reports of ghosts and ghouls, but the line between fact and fiction has always been unclear. Using the modern idiom of the outside broadcast, Michael Parkinson, Sarah Green, Mike Smith and Craig Charles star in Ghost Watch. Hello and welcome to another episode of a very special episode. This is a bit of a different one this week. This is a very spooky episode where me and my partner in crime and partner in life, Callum Sinclair, uh, are going to talk about some of our favourite uh, spooky moments, not not saying uh, horror, but our favourite spooky moments from TV throughout the years and our, uh, the GOAT, I think, the greatest of all time, Ghost Watch. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, like, well, well, we shall review. Let's, let's review. Um, so I'm going to kind of take us through our usual questions, but with an ooky, spooky twist, a little bit ook and a little bit spook. Um, and I'm going to talk about what sort of spooky things did we watch when we were younger? What sort of spooky things did you watch when you were younger? Well, both of us were children of the 80s, uh, sort of dark fantasy adventure film era. Um, So when I was younger, my favourite films were things like Return to Oz, The NeverEnding Story, uh, Labyrinth. And of course, on, you, you know, certainly on British TV, there wasn't really anything with that scope or budget. Um, but that was where you kind of found these spooky sort of dark moments that I really responded to as a kid. Um, so things like the, uh, was it the Gamork, the wolf thing from the never ending story and the, you know, Mombi and all of our heads and the wheelers and return to Oz. Um, and I guess the closest British TV analog to that was um, the BBC's Chronicles of Narnia series. Mm. Um, which did have a few pretty creepy and spooky moments. Like the White Witch was a little bit OTT. Um, She's very BBC nineties, very very BBC nineties. <laughs> but um, there was uh, in the Silver Chair where she turns into a snake. The 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 Green Witch turns into a snake, and the, actually the Silver Chair was probably the the creepiest of them because there was a whole scene with some um, like humanoid owls that was quite creepy. Is the Silver Chair the one with Tom Baker? Yeah, Tom Baker's in it playing Puddle Glum, who's like this oh. sort of miserable half human, half frog thing. And there's a scene where Puddle Glum and the two kids that are the sort of protagonists of of the Silver Chair, uh, Jill and Eustace. They go to this castle where they're looked after by these giants. And, you know, they're really pampered and they're really well cared for. But, of course, it turns out that the giants actually want to eat them as part of this big feast. And that was pretty intense, mm. <laughs> that kind of revelation. When I think I the, the spookiest thing from the Narnia things for me, like we went back and watched them, like, probably about 20 years ago now. But, you know, in our in our adulthood, and the sort of creepiest things about it for me is that the animals in it, or most of the animals in it, are played by people. Yeah. Like the beavers are big yeah, people in beaver costumes. Yeah. I thought you said we were going to a dress in beaver concert. And especially in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, you have, um, I can't remember what they call him. It's, it's either Morgris or Fenris Wolf because they 
change the name between different adaptations but um it's the sort of wolf sort of chief of of the wolf bodyguards i guess Mm. that the white witch has and that's played by like a man in a suit but it it, you know he he pops up occasionally as a bit of a a jump scare i do think there's something in that like in those like people dressed up in costumes pretending to be an animal because isn't that what those things are like like i don't know how i've lost my thread but like in if you write something in a book you know an anthropos an anthropomorphized animal is really just a person is it not like the wolf in little red riding hood is a creepy guy who wants to hurt women yeah but, but um but that idea of um, kind of animal human hybrids sort of leads me on quite nicely to my next uh, oh, sort of spooky it's moment. Segue. <laughs> it's a segue to the demon headmaster. Um, ah. Now, the demon headmaster was a '90s uh, CBBC adaptation of of the books by Gillian Cross, and I think they recently rebooted it they had a bit of a a demon headmaster revival they did he's like a sexy demon headmaster now though yeah but the the og demon headmaster creepy in his own right but um there's a particular moment that i remember from the second series so i remember reading the books and sort of looking forward to the adaptation uh of uh of the second book which i think is called the demon headmaster returns um and there's a really creepy scene in it where, uh, so the protagonist of the Demon Headmaster series is this girl called Dinah Glass. And uh, in the second book and in the second series of the TV show, uh, the Demon Headmaster's plan is to essentially clone Dinah, but he uses like lizard DNA to do it. So you get this whole scene where you've got this like big egg that the Demon Headmaster is incubating and it hatches and you've got like a half lizard half human Dinah coming out of it coming out of the, the shell of this egg and she's got a lizard tongue that's flicking out of her mouth and she's got kind of scales down the side of her face and that image there was something like really primally ugh, horrible that, about it that does feel like a repressed memory it feels like it bubbled up from somewhere it was Keeping it tucked away. (laughs) While you were talking for most of that, I was just thinking, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the stage, (laughs) Miss Dinah Glass. (laughs) Yeah, like such a drag. One icon. What was she got? Gillian Cross. Uh, The other one, I think, is Helen Cresswell. The the other sort of go of uh, British, like Helen Cresswell wrote a lot of sort of ghost story books Mm -hmm. that were adapted to TV series and I think uh, to children's TV series and I think because they because of the like limitations of budget and stuff like that they have to do sort of interesting things to make them eerie the one that I remember and I don't even remember the title of it is I think it's a Helen Cresswell thing and it's like the opening scene is like a girl in a white dress running around. It's as... Moondial, I think you're thinking yes, of. Yes. Yeah, Moondial. The thing is, so when I was a kid, uh, Moondial always seemed a little bit boring. But looking back on it now, I watched a YouTube video of that whole intro. It is such vibes. This <laughs> girl wandering around is this this beautiful kind of like eerie soundtrack in the background. It's a little bit david lynchian uh in a way it's mm. uh yeah so moondial's maybe one I'd, I'd like to revisit i think yeah because I, I i agree like i i found that 
when I was a kid, I remember I probably watched it and I was like, oh, this is just boring. This is like the thing they put on at the end of CBBC that's sort of for <laughs> older kids yeah. and you don't really get it. Um, but revisiting it now, it's definitely got the feel of those like um, sort of ghost stories for Christmas, like yeah. slightly 70s things. But yeah, yeah. I, 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 I've got a lot of time for those things. Yeah. Um, going back to the Demon Headmaster, I think... I've got a bit of a, I've got a point to make on okay. this podcast. Okay, <laughs> have you got a type five on I, the demon? Oh, <laughs> I absolutely do. No, it's um, so the, there's a couple of things. So first of all, is is the idea of the different types of horror, I guess. Um, so you had that when I was describing the the lizard diner coming out, there was a sort of gross out factor or a kind of like revulsion that you see of an, an image that is like a bit gross that there's a spectacle to that um and then there's also the level of horror that is around terror that is around suspense uh and i think there was plenty of that in the demon headmaster as well mm. you had that sort of aura of dread about it um and i guess what my soapbox moment for the episode <laughs> is um it, it, it is around um horror or you know spooky elements or scary elements being useful for kids to to explore themes and to explore you know um mortality and uh, all kinds of uh big themes and big ideas in a sort of safe and accessible way mm. and of course with the demon headmaster you had uh, a sort of patriarchal figure um an authority figure who was um who was abusing his power essentially and what and was you know controlling people and i think that having uh really uh, intense villains and powerful villains like that can help young people and kids to just think about things in a different context mm. um it's always been a little bit of a pet peeve of mine when people say oh i saw this and i was traumatized by it as a kid and it's like no it, it's it's not <laughs> it's not trauma like you maybe there was kind of anxiety or there was it, it provoked a response in you um but i i think it's really quite healthy for for kids and for young people to have an opportunity to to think about ideas like that and yeah and it's better to do that in a way where it's it is fantastical and it's um uh, y you know there's a sort of otherworldly element where it it's less real it's very different to kids and young young people being desensitized to depictions of of physical violence um, and I think with horror, we can tend to lump in everything together. So b between these more supernatural and kind of metaphorical elements mm. and, you know, brutality and physical violence, that all sort of gets lumped together under the umbrella of horror. Whereas I think, you know, we could maybe make a few distinctions there. And what I tend to be drawn towards is, is that more supernatural otherworldly element and I'm a big horror fan now but I would never go for things like uh, uh you know saw or your what your what you might call sort of torture porn stuff this is a tangent but I think that stuff was really mislabeled because I think a lot of, like I think saw is a soap opera but I think it's also like a puzzle 
thing, uh, mm. like a sort of puzzle box of a show, uh, not a show, um, it still feels like a show because it's so soapy and so many returning characters and stuff like that. But I think there's a point as well around how horror works best. And when it comes to the TV format, you've got lots of anthology programs like anthology horrors Mm. because i'm not sure how well horror as a genre works across a serialized program um i think no i think you've got a point there i I, because i think part of the thing with horror and i think we see it in shows like like the walking dead which i've talked about on this on this podcast before i I'm still watching The Walking Dead. I'm one of the people that is still watching The Walking Dead. It's on like season 14, 15 at this mm-hmm. point. It, it it also is a soap opera. Um, but there is a point at which you're watching The Walking Dead and you're just watching people die. You're yeah. just like, the show became, especially for a, a while in the middle there, like, who's going to die this week? Like, let's set up. And, and then they were kind of going through characters at such a rate of knots that they had to set up new characters and you kind of would see people come in and know that they were going to die in like three episodes or something and then um but I think I think the big thing with the way I think part of the reason horror is tricky to do on tv and works better in anthology is because it's like horror has a natural end and often that yeah. end doesn't lend itself to a TV series where you're telling sort of character arcs yeah. over a long period of time. Absolutely. Uh, I'm not someone that likes to re-watch series over and over again. I am. Yeah, Michael has probably... How many times do you think you've watched Buffy? <laughs> I, there's no point in counting. Yeah. I'm not re-watching Buffy. I'm just watching Buffy. It's It's... It's in constant rotation. Yeah. But, strangely, I, I, I think that I'm a bit more compelled to re-watch episodes of an anthology show mm. than, uh, than a, a serialised drama. And I think that's because they're sort of a bit more self-contained. It's like I'd, I'd, I'd be more likely to re-watch a film mm. rather than a whole TV series. Yeah. And... Similarly, I'd be more likely to rewatch an episode of Black Mirror, I guess, or, you know, Tales from the Dark Side or something along those lines, um, because you don't feel like you have to watch all of the rest of the series or, you know, catch up with where everybody's at. It's self-contained and it's like a horror short story. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there's something in that, actually. But to take us back, to take us away from this high-minded stuff, (laughs) um, I would like to talk about the ook and the spook of 90s children's TV first, before we move on. Sure. Um, Do you have a Goosebumps? You're a Goosebumps girl, or are you afraid of the dark? Uh, Uh, I'm verse when it comes to It's... Yeah, I I guess I preferred Goosebumps to an extent because Goosebumps could be more out there. I think with Are You Afraid of the Dark, you had a few more restrained ghost stories, I guess. Mm. Um, whereas Goosebumps was more likely to go hell for leather with the prosthetics and the kind of crazy... It was sillier. It, yeah, was, it was sillier, sillier, but in a like fun way. It was fun. It yeah. was probably more fun. yeah. And definitely of the of the two franchises, uh, my favourite was the Haunted Mask 
uh, which uh, was a Goosebumps yeah. um, story. Uh, What's she called? Uh, uh, Carly Beth. Carly, uh, Carly Beth. <laughs> Uh, goes to a sort of Halloween shop. Uh, well, it's, it's coming up for Halloween. She goes to this shop and she uh, she discovers this horrible prosthetic mask thing that she wears and then it attaches itself to her face and it's almost like a, a demon possession. She kind of gets willed by this haunted mm. mask to to do bad things uh, and it's her trying to remove it. And I think there's a... I'm, I can be a bit claustrophobic as well. Mm. And I think that idea of this mask like attaching itself to you and not being able to physically escape from this thing that's clinging to you that is also starting to control your thoughts as well. There was something quite eerie about that to me. There's a, a, a Goosebumps book. I can't remember what it's called, but it's basically the book is like you go through the whole book and the, the twist is that they were all dogs all along. Yeah, there's a lot of stupid <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> but there, yeah, yeah, and uh, the the one that it's like a cell memory waking up. But the one that I remember is I think it's a Goosebumps, but it's about like an old lady, like an old sort of like these two kids get babysat by who they think is their aunt, but it turns out she's not their aunt. Uh-huh. And she makes them cookies, I think, that turn them into old men. And I think it's, I think she's, it's like prunes or something she's feeding oh, yes, to them. Yes. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but I know the one that you but mean. But it turns them into old men. And the, the sort of conceit of it, now that I think of it as an adult, is so weird because she's turning them into old men because her old friends want husbands who yeah this whole <laughs> fucked up benjamin Button, uh, human trafficking scenario was what not, a weird time not the tea. there's just nothing nothing like that now that i'm aware of anyway there was a show a couple of years ago that was more of a horror thing for kids but there's not a lot of i feel like a lot of the sort of horror things are in the young adult space now yeah, there, there have been other attacks. It's strange because it feels like they tried to do a, a sort of middle grade version of, of Goosebumps and Are You Afraid of the Dark with um, The Haunting Hour, which mm. was R.L. Stein as well. And they were kind of similar, again, anthology series, but they did seem to be geared towards, um, you know, slightly older children. But you're right. I think in the age of streaming, it's been very much directed into anything with horror elements is uh, is going to be um, YA, uh, apart from stuff like your Hotel Transylvanias and the stuff that kind of uses spooky kind of Halloween-y trappings. Yeah. But it, it is very much geared for, for children. Although actually thinking of that, there is like a lot of, I think a lot of like magic stuff and there's things like Monster High for young, young, yeah. young kids. So it's, yeah, I don't know, maybe that. Maybe I just don't watch enough children's media because I, myself, you may know this, I'm not a child. Well, there is that. So... Well, I could feed you some prunes and then <laughs> yeah, see what happens. See what happens. Um, so what sort of ooky spooky stuff are we watching now? What do we like watching now? So I am a big fan. I know you're slightly less of a fan uh, of Mike Flanagan. No, no, I'm a, I'm a Stanigan. I, I don't know why you say slightly less of a fan. I'm All a, right, I'm right. a I love Mike Flanagan. Mike, um, Mike, Mike. Mike. <laughs> Mike. That's what Mike. his uh, yeah. big fans call. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the um, the Haunting of Hill House series. I was quite cynical about that at first because I was a, a fan of the Charlie Jackson novel that it's 
yes, yes, adapted you can from. Read. You I can read. read. <laughs> no, but also, you know, there was the um, the the Robert Wise film, The Haunting, which mm. is like, you know, a, a horror classic, a kind of ghost story classic. And I was like, well, let's see what this is like. Oh, they're changing who all the characters are, and like, there's a you know very different. Um, tone and structure to it um but i think it really worked it really worked nicely as a sort of remix of um of the themes and the the characters in the novel and it was really scary yes i think i think the haunting of hill house is the absolute apex of of tv horror i think it like gets everything right it's the the scary stuff the character-driven stuff. There's a really clear story with the sort of arc of that family. These, like, themes. It, it just gets everything right. And I think it, like, shows how to adapt something that... Because there's a lot of stuff in it. I love The Haunting of Hill House, the the, the book. But um, there's a lot of stuff in that that, that it doesn't play now. And I think would be hard to do yeah. until you. If people are watching telly, they need to tell uh, Liz Lewin, um, who's a TV producer. I was once at a talk with her where she said television is tarty, and <laughs> it, it, it t- you need to hook people on television. And yeah. I think Hill House does that whilst delivering this really good kind of psychological horror as well. Yeah. And does, does does some really good, like, um, just gimmicky things that are really clever and good. Like the episode that's all in one take, yeah. or like, uh, mostly in one take. Yeah, and that's the thing, it, it goes back to what I was saying about the Demon Headmaster and the types of horror. I think there's, for me, to have successful horror, you need to have that element of dread and psychological horror and all, all that heady stuff. But you also need to have spectacle. And mm. I think that's why things like The Exorcist really works for me because it is that mixture of both of those things. The Exorcist like, on TV or on... Uh, or well, we'll movie. get to The Exorcist on TV um, but as a movie. But, you know, hereditary, things like that. There is a mixture of both the... It, it, it gets the adrenaline going as well as mm. making you, you kind of worry uh, and gives you something visual to react to as well. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think Haunting of Hill House does that really well. Um, so with the other Mike Flanagan series, um, you had The Haunting of Bly Manor, which was uh, another sort of remixed adaptation of The Turn of the Screw. I didn't think it was as as, as successful as The Haunting of Hill House. Um, and it did have a lot of good elements in it, but it wasn't as scary to me, and it wasn't as um, it it just wasn't as successful for, for me as. I think that Bly Manor. I've talked about this on another episode of this podcast, but like, I think Bly Manor is a love story rather than a horror story, um, and it. I think it's like if you're going in expecting Hill House, you're going to be disappointed. I do think that one of the big problems with it is that there's like a this the I think Hill House builds the sort of mythology quite well, like like sort of incrementally builds the the mythology over these episodes. But I think Bly Manor sort of does an info dump episode. Yeah. Towards the end, which is like, oh, and here's everything that happened in this house and why it's haunted, um, which just doesn't quite hit the spot for me. There is that, but also 
the turn of the screw and again the the 60s film adaptation of that which is called the innocence they are so intense and there's there's a sort of real focus to what they're looking to achieve with the horror in in those um whereas bly manor i i i just don't think it it, it coheres well i do the 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 bit that i always really remember well i think the two actors that i remember for that for are, are raul coley and uh tania miller and oh, I they're think great yeah the, they're really good that episode where tania miller spoiler alert is realizing she's a ghost mm-hmm. and she's sort of un untethered from time yeah is is like about as clever as you can get on television without becoming boring yeah um and i think it really works i really i i I think there's a lot to like in that series i don't like i don't like that people i feel like flanagan has made a rod for his home back by making one of the greatest horror TV series of all time as his first TV series. But I would say Midnight Mass is just a whisper behind Haunting of Hill House for me. Mm. I know like your mileage may vary for a lot of people. And it was, I think Midnight Mass was more divisive in a lot of ways than um, Hill House was. But um, I really found a lot to relate to and that I was genuinely disturbed by in Midnight Mass. Midnight Mass is quite an interesting one. I heard this recently from someone, I can't remember who, but it was apparently his first thing he ever wrote as a movie, I think. And I do think it would probably work better as a movie, but it feels to me, and I think it felt like when, when we were watching it, it feels like a, like a, like a lockdown show. It feels like it was, you can feel that it was made in lockdown, not least because there's that one scene that's like 15 minutes long with two people sitting on the couch talking. Yeah, that, yeah that's my least favourite element of Mike Flanagan's stuff is the extended, extended monologues. But I do think the, um, I think the like thematics of it feel lockdowny, and yeah. I think it feels really, re- it felt really relevant to the very specific time that it was made and released. Absolutely. And I think that really played into what was the scariest and most horrific moment in that series for me. Uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Midnight Mass, which was the, the the Easter church service where they barricade all of the parishioners into the church and they have the choice as to whether they're going to drink the blood of the angel uh, so the, the kind of communion wine is is being spiked with what is really vampire blood from this like horrendous demonic uh, angel figure that they're um that is influencing the the, the priest um and it, it becomes a total bloodbath as people die in the church um and again claustrophobia i guess that they're, they're all kind of locked in um and i just found that scene deeply like viscerally disturbing mm. uh how all the people of different ages and different groups were, were drinking this blood and were dying violently and it's like i don't know it's making me think of but it's it's cult it's like pure yeah. cult it's yeah. it's um what it's heaven's gate isn't it it's yeah. kool-aid they're drinking the kool-aid yeah and it's it's fascinating i i think there's i really like that show um who, what are the other spooky goats Okay, so I 
love this show. It doesn't really get talked about so much anymore. It is Penny Dreadful. Penny Dreadful was a good show. It was a good show. It did go off track a little bit in the third season, um, but I think there were, uh, you know, and there were less good elements of the series throughout, but uh, I am a sucker for a bit of gothic melodrama. Uh, I love the whole monster mash thing where we've got Frankenstein and Dracula and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Dorian Gray. And, and Eva Green playing the character she always plays that she's very good at. Eva Green in that show is absolutely she's amazing. Uh, and two of my favourite, I mean, she gives this absolute tour de force performance in this seance scene in the first series uh, where she gets, she first kind of gets possessed by this evil force uh, and it's a real absolute stonking performance uh, but my probably my favorite moment from the whole series uh is a scene in the second uh season uh which involves witches and mm-hmm. as you may know we enjoy witch related media <laughs> um so that the the kind of head witch of the coven who's played by the late great helen mccrory who may also come up again in this episode mm-hmm. um uh, so Helen McCrory has been creating these uh, dolls, these kind of uh, fetish dolls, or like you know, might call them voodoo dolls, um, of the various characters, and has been using them to cast spells and to control them. And she's been like cutting out people's hearts and things like that to put into the dolls to give them this additional magic power. And she's created a doll of Eva Green's character. And in the last episode, I think of season two. Uh, Eva Green's character, uh, Vanessa, uh, has this face-off with uh, the the witch and the puppet version of Eva yes. Green, which has been possessed by Satan, who is also played by Eva Green. So Eva Green basically has this rap battle of like <laughs> intense, uh, kind of scary spell casting with the, this demon-possessed doll of herself which is starting to fall apart. It is high camp, uh, but also really intense, quite scary, um, massive production values. Like the whole series is just so glossy and over the top. I just love it. I think the I think Penny Dreadful was giving the gays everything they want. Billy Piper, National yeah. Treasure, Billy Piper in series one with an Irish accent, with uh-huh. like a sort of Belfasty accent, and then in the her accent, God bless her, is so bad that they kill her off and bring her back as a with a different accent. In series two, well, this is but there was a whole reason for that as well. well so yes, yeah, um, and then uh, Patty Lapone, Patty Lapone as the cut wife, up, yeah, and yeah, and and obviously Josh Hartner, uh, uh, Josh Hartner looking fine, fine, uh, fine, fine for fine, fine, fine. Yeah, there was so much, and even even from that first episode of oh, uh, what's he called from Years and Years is in it as well. Ah, Ollie Alexander, yeah, yes, as like kind of Renfield. In one episode, but was in the opening credits for the whole series. <laughs> um, yeah, but in the first, like, right from that first episode, there's a jump scare in in the first episode where I was like, whoa, it was, it was, uh, it grabbed me. It really did grab my attention um, beyond the, you know, the production values and the performances. I was like, here is a, 
a piece of horror, yes. which is great fun. Although we did, oh, and there's um uh, that one of those twins who plays uh is he Frankenstein or is he Dorian Gray? Oh, who you oh, know yeah, who he, I mean? He p- plays Doctor Frankenstein. Um, yeah, I, I know who you mean. Uh, something uh, tread tread Treadwell? well tread tread lightly yeah. and carry a big stick twins <laughs> um so he's in it but then uh, the character that i just did not care for god bless is is it rory kinnear yeah it's rory playing Fra- frankenstein's monster like i remember even the i think the campness of penny dreadful like i'm awful to watch tv with because i like to talk all the way through something because i love the sound of my own voice um but Whenever he'd come on screen, it would be like, oh, she here she comes. (laughs) Little Miss Sunshine. (laughs) Just this miserable, emo, greasy-haired Frankenstein's monster. I just... uh, It wasn't for me. Anyway... Uh, what else are we? What else do we like in the TV space? Spooky coats, American Horror Story, the spookiest thing of all time. A Ryan Murphy show. Well, quite. Yeah, obviously, it's a it's a real mixed bag. At American Horror Story. I think we have kind of different favorites. The witches one the series for you. Is mine. <laughs> um, for me, I I think the. Probably the be- the most well made, the best series overall is would be Asylum. Yes, um, but it's I think it's a little bit underrated in some some respects. Uh, is the the Roanoke series? The Roanoke series was really creepy and really delivered on the horror front. I think. I think so, and it and it has a great performance. What's she called? Adina Porter. Yes, and. Um... Uh, Lady Gaga as the original Supreme as well. Well, yes, uh, and then Kathy Bates as the as the butcher. There was a lot of like genuinely um, creepy elements, I think, to the Roanoke series and the uh, the setup for the structure of Roanoke is that like this. Uh, obviously, the the historical story of Roanoke, I, which I think is a true story that that, that happened yeah. and people disappeared or something like that. And then you get—is it a movie that they've made about yeah, it? Yeah, they're doing a kind of reconstruction. So there's like a fictionalized version of events that's playing out, and then you've got the actors that are the, the, then the, the actors go back people, to make yes, and the, the the actors. So it's 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 quite meta, but I think that it works but then the last one is like that they go and make like a reality show in roanoke in the sort of area of it yeah so they sort of play with found footage and 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 there's this like folk horror vibe to it as well and folk horror is something that i'm very into it's a very it's the american version of folk horror i think that sort of um early america stuff it's it's interesting i i like that series a lot anything else on the horror story front um yes i think Murder House, when I think about scary moments from American Horror Story, um, the one that jumps out at me, again, from the the first episode, is in Murder House, it's the first uh, reveal of the Infantata, when uh, Tate and Violet go down to the basement to scare the, you know, the preppy girl from the school, or, you know, the, you know, it's a, a load of the popular kids, let's take them down to the basement and give them a real scare, and it reveals this um, this creature that's like a, a kind of baby demon thing in this Victorian kind of gown, um, like as a sort of jump scare thing. And although the, the the episode leading up to that had obvious horror elements, it 
it was at that point where it was like, okay, so this is the kind of show that we're mm. we're dealing with. But it, as with everything in American American Horror Story, you sort of have to treat it like a dream yeah. because, like, my like um, my like rational brain thinking about that goes: Tay Langdon was part of this group that took these preppy girls down into the basement. Tate Langdon, we find out fairly soon after, is a notorious school shooter who shot up the school that these girls would be going to, presumably, not that long ago. So why did they not know that it was him? Anyway. There's a lot of... That's one of the least of the problems with American stories. The The girl from Precious being having sex with a minotaur for no reason. Um, Yeah, I I don't believe in guilty pleasures, but American Horror Story makes it very difficult to say that you Oh she's a she's a difficult gal to love but you know you've got she's got a lot going for her. Um and I I think I think, you know, it's stuck around and it stayed the course because it is pure spectacle, a lot of American Horror Story. Yeah. I think sometimes like I didn't really get on board with the cult series and the uh nineteen eighty four was it called? Or nineteen eighty five, the sort of slasher one. Yeah. Because I I'm not as into slashers, yeah, but uh, a lot of it. I I remember when we watched the slasher one with a bunch of gays, and we had this like theory that because Gus Kenworthy is in the first couple of episodes, uh-huh. and God bless her, but <laughs> it, it's not not a natural not, actor, not a natural actor, and that we had this theory that it was like. The 1984 we were watching was the bad 80s movie version of the story we were eventually going to get. Well. (laughs) And that's not what happened. Yeah, as ever with American Horror Story, lower your expectation. It was like with the, the most recent double feature series, it started off really promising with the first episodes of that Red Tide, um, kind of New England seaside vampires thing it looked oh actually this might be a bit of a return to form in some ways but I, I, <laughs> absolutely botched it by the end that was a that was another lockdown series and i think that i think there's a lot of stuff in that that works yeah um put myrtle snow in a wig and some contacts and i'm into it really by myrtle snow you mean established esteemed veteran actress Frances conroy yes but she is and always will be myrtle snow <laughs> What do you want to wear this spring? What do you think is the new thing? What do you want to wear this season? Uh. So speaking of watching things with a group of gays, I can remember... Uh, another uh, scary TV moment was when we watched the first episode of the second series of Channel Zero. Okay. So they had already watched the first series, which was um, uh, which was Candle Cove. Teeth Baby. Yeah, Teeth Baby. So Channel Zero is based on basically creepypastas, uh, you know, these internet stories, which they then format into a TV series. And each Similar to American Horror Story, structurally, each season is like a self-contained narrative. Well, that was up until American Horror Story started 
bringing characters across different things and it became a whole Oh, that doesn't count. It's still... Anyway. <laughs> uh, so anyway, Channel Zero. So we watched with some friends uh, the, the first episode of the second series, which is called No End House. And I found that episode really <laughs> disturbing and kind of horrible. And it was just strange because I think we were... Usually when we're watching horror stuff with this group of friends, it's like having a bit of a laugh. And it's, it's Frank it's and Hooker and stuff. like... It's camp, camp horror. horror yeah. Yes, uh, but we watched this show and we were all kind of sitting around, quite hushed, and just watching this series, which had a real sense of dread about it. Just that first episode, um, and it was quite draining to watch. I had a very different experience with that series because I don't like creepy pasta. I think it's nonsense. It, there's no payoff, and that's kind of how I felt about the series. Yeah, I think it does really good horror on a very, very obviously tight budget. Uh-huh. Um, but it never quite hits the spot for me. Um, but but can often attract an interesting cast. Yeah. Uh, what's her face? Um, Fiona Shaw. Fiona Shaw is in in this first one. Yeah, in Candlecall. Um, yeah, like interesting cast and sometimes interesting ideas, but they just never they just sort of fritter away into nothing for me. Those yeah. things, but that's what that's what creepy pastas are. So, you know, can't can't watch something that you inherently don't like and then complain that it does what it always does. Yeah. So I guess flipping it on its its head from something that felt like really joyless and draining to watch. Uh, we also are fans of of the odd horror comedy, things like What We Do in the Shadows, mm. for instance. Um, great fun. Obviously less horror, uh, but no, using the trappings of horror to... I, I would disagree because I think, I think... So this is the, a very spooky episode. It's not a very horror episode, okay, just so you know. It's about the ook and the spook. Um, I think what we do in the shadows, though, what you can tell from that series is that it's made by people who love horror, who love yeah. vampire movies and monster movies. And, and there's a great... I think there's a much as much attention paid to that yeah. as there is the, the comedy, which is also good and, and yeah. works. Um, but and also I think the series would not work as well without Nadja. Yes. Um, she is the MVP. She's the MVP of that show. And also another horror comedy, we've got the Chucky series, which... Mm. Uh, Brings all the thrills, spills, and high camp of Jennifer and Tilly and kills, of course, uh, and tills and tills. Yeah, uh, Jennifer Tilly. Oh my god! I yeah. On Jennifer Tilly, I talk about this every time her name comes up. But there's a um, Jinx Monsoon did a sketch where it's Jennifer Tilly talking to Jennifer Coolidge on the phone, <laughs> and it's the funniest thing I've ever heard in my whole life. So mm-hmm. that's my recommendation from this. If nothing else, go and watch that sketch. Hi. Hi, Jennifer Coolidge. It's me, Jennifer Tilly. Oh, hi. Hi. Where are you? I'm just lounging by my pool. But what that that Chucky series does really nicely for me, I think there's like a lot of, oh, it's this, like I don't ever want to engage in any sort of culture war nonsense. But there's a lot of like, um, 
that sort of bro-y, incel-y vibe within horror fandoms. Yes. And then I think what the Chucky series does is, like, sort of show you that this has always been in Chucky. Like, yeah. like the, the main character is a gay teenager. Um, and But they just do such... That's not even the most interesting bit from, like, yeah, a yeah. queer point of view. They do such interesting things with gender. Where Fiona Dorif, who is Brad Dorif, the voice of Chucky's daughter, plays a character who is possessed by Chucky. And yes. then, at different points, she's playing the character possessed by Chucky pretending to be the girl that she originally was. But then in the flashbacks, uh-huh. um, where you get this kind of, you know, what... You get this sort of origin story of Chucky or Charles Lee Ray. Yeah. Um, Fiona Dorif plays Chucky. She plays yeah. Charles Lee Ray in, like, full geesh. Yeah, she's great. And she's, she's just brilliant. Just like, like, you look at that and you go, like, what an amazing actor... And how bonkers it is that she's in yeah. the Chucky franchise. Yeah. Um, but it, I think Jennifer Tilly is a tour de force in that. I think she has found a space. Because Jennifer Tilly, the character, is now Tiffany the doll, who was played by Jennifer Tilly, is now possessing the body of the actual real-world actress Jennifer Tilly. Yes. <laughs> It's uh, it's high concept it's, and, and, and lowbrow. Uh, yeah. Yes, high nonsense. Yeah, um, it's on a similar horror and comedy vibe. We have the the, the range of works by um, Rishia Smith and uh, Steve Pemberton and to varying extents, Mark Gatiss. Uh, so you've got The League of Gentlemen. And Jeremy Oh, and Jeremy Dyson, Dyson. as well, yes. yes. Uh, I was going to say Jeffrey Dahmer. He was not part of The League of Gentlemen. <laughs> anyway. uh, uh, moving swiftly on. Okay, so we've got The League of Gentlemen, uh, Psychoville, uh, which had a Halloween special, but uh, all of these series dealt with Halloween, uh, uh, you know, Halloween with scary, <laughs> spooky, and and horror elements throughout, uh, and also Inside Number Nine. Um, and there is, in terms of moments, there is an episode which is the last episode of series one of Inside Number Nine, which is called The Harrowing. And again, we have a bit of gothic melodrama. We also have Helen McCrory, um, and she and Reese Smith, Reese Smith, Reese Shearsmith Smith play. <laughs> Uh, a couple who are uh, who own this uh, kind of decrepit mansion and invite this uh, young woman to babysit or to, um, to sort of look after something within the house, to look after uh, an unseen presence within the house. Uh, and then when we do actually see what is being looked after and discover what is going on, it is deeply frightening. It is it's really, really scary for you know what is what you go into expecting a horror comedy, and you're expecting sort of high camp. 
is really quite disturbing. I think that's the interesting thing. Inside number nine is coming up on this on the show itself, so I won't go too much into it. But I think that's one of the interesting things about Inside Number Nine is that it can do. It's sort of every series will have like maybe a slightly more serious episode, mm-hmm. um, and a more. So no, I don't like that idea of a slightly more serious episode. I mean, like a an episode that is leaning more towards drama than comedy. Yeah. And then I think every series will have like a proper all-out horror. Yes. And yeah, that 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 finale of series one is amazing. Any other spooky moments? Yes, there's one that I remember from a series that I would like to watch properly. We watched a couple of episodes of this, but I do want to revisit it. Uh, and it made a big impression on me. And that is the French series on Netflix, mm. uh, Marianne. Marianne. Um <laughs> Again, another incredible performance in this from uh, the actress Mireille uh, Herbstmeier, uh, who plays a sort of secondary character in it, but makes such an impression. Which one is she? Uh, so she is the she is the mother that gets possessed, but it, the, she's the mother of the child. To, right, let me go she's back the from, the, from the, the beginning with the plot synopsis here. So, essentially the series is about a, a young uh, author who's written a series of books and a childhood friend of hers comes to tell her that her mother has been possessed by this evil spirit of a witch named Marianne who appears in, in this writer's series of books. Um, and then this girl uh, dies Uh, kills herself and the author goes back to her hometown um, to see this woman who's been who's allegedly been possessed by Marianne uh, and she is such a scary presence this Mm. possessed woman Mm. Uh, real spooky performance Uh, but the scene that I clearly remember only involves her slightly Um, so the writer's assistant is trapped in a house and the alarm system goes off. This is, I think, at the beginning of the second episode. Is this the assistant in inverted commas? The uh, <laughs> assistant with whom has a fair bit of uh, sexual chemistry with... There's with never been a bigger lesbian couple and there's never been a more lesbian thing than going through a whole series and not hooking up. Yeah. So, so the assistant's in the house and the alarm's going off uh, and then she gets a phone call from the security company and she's alone in this sort of dark, strange house. And the security company are saying, oh, what we need you to do is we need you to walk into these other rooms and check everything. So you get these long uh, shots of uh, this woman walking through the, the house and, you know, the shadows in the corners are kind of s- stretching out behind her and it's very, very creepy and there is that sense of dread of what are we going to see. Uh, and the security person's talking through this uh, and asks her to go to a window and so she closes this window uh, and then the voice on the phone says, turn around and, like, it's very gradually you're thinking, actually, this isn't somebody from the security company after all. This is this is Marianne. This is the evil spirit, um, and you know the characters gradually realizing this as well. Um, and the voice is like, "If you look in the corner, you'll see me." No. And then you, very slowly the camera turns, t- and then you see, you know, the the possessed woman in the corner, and then it cuts. To- <laughs> so it goes from just just the actress to her with this like horrific face uh they do this thing where 
when you see Marianne throughout the rest of the series, like you get a jump scare, like puppet version of Marianne, which has like these big scary eyes. It's like a Jim Henson creature shot version of Marianne. Mm. Um, but because you only see it very fleetingly, it is still quite effective. Um, so yeah, I do want to revisit Marianne. It's a it's a no from me. No, no, I do genuinely want to watch it, but I hate jump scares. Mm-hmm. I just don't like them. Um, often watch horror films with a website called Where's the Jump yeah. uh, open, <laughs> uh, and yeah, I I found that series excruciating yeah. not least because of the sexual tension between those two women <laughs> i should say like like the, the the writer in it is like this soft butch kind of shane from the l word vibe and yeah. then the the assistant in inverted commas is like a lesbian librarian oh, right. vibe yeah. no like the long hair and glasses sort of alphabet but not green that's her whole thing yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so I have a, a couple more rapid fire. Oh, uh, do you? Well, moments. I'm sorry. I was trying to uh, give the lesbians something for a fucking change. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, in fact, in that case, I will give them Gina Davis. Gina right? Davis. Do they want her? Uh, Maybe not. <laughs> um, so the Exorcist TV series that we, we mentioned earlier on. So this is a massive spoiler, but this is actually what made me want to watch the show. And it is a it is a good show. There's two seasons of it. And it's, it's a good it's show. A solid. But um, this is a good spoiler. So like jump forward two minutes if you don't want to hear it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the series, uh, rather than it... Uh, Rather than it being a, a remake of The Exorcist, the, you know, the film, the book, uh, we're following two different priests uh, who are who become involved with this family, uh, the kind of matriarch of whom is played by Gina Davis. Uh, there's the husband and there's two teenage daughters. And one of the teenage daughters, they're older than, you know, Reagan was in, in the original, these two teenage girls. Um, uh, but one of the daughters becomes uh, possessed and, you know, the usual kind of antics ensue um scares and and whatnot Mm -hmm. um but at around uh, about two-thirds of the way through the series um it's gradually revealed that gina davis's character is in fact reagan from the original exorcist so it's not a remake so it's it's so it's a, a sequel it's a continuation and it's delivered in such a way it's a total wham episode there's like very small clues um worked in 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 the in the lead up to it um and it ends with um reagan's mother um arriving at the house in the same manner that the exorcist you know with the with the kind of fog Mm. in the street light in front of the house like the famous sort of poster for the exorcist um she arrives at the house uh just as it's revealed that that gina davis's character is reagan um yeah that's, That's it, great. but it did come back for a second series, which was the the two sort of priests that can exercise demons now, mm-hmm. going and sort of following a completely new case, yeah. which I think is maybe now that I think of it, based on the case that the Exorcist is based yes. on. Yeah, um, but that feels like that felt like a show that could run and run. I mean, I guess there's only so many kind of mm-hmm. oh, there's a kid that's possessed. What are we gonna do? Yeah, like, but but. Um, yeah, it felt like it had a... Like, you could branch out, and I liked those two guys, the two priests. I liked the kind of yeah. dynamic of it. Like, supernatural, but they're not sexy brothers. No. Maybe they're a different kind well, of brother. Well. <laughs> sexy fathers. 
Um, yeah, so the Exodus TV series, that's, that is a, a recommend if you didn't check it out. And again, it, considering it was on Fox and it wasn't like on a cable channel, they'd go surprisingly hard with the D- with the scares. Did somebody get decapitated in that? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, there's yes. like loads of the, stuff. It's yeah. pretty, pretty full on, yeah. like, yeah. Uh, so my next whistle stop recommend is actually something that I, I picked up on from one of my favourite podcasts. Shout out to The Evolution of Horror. Um, they did an episode which was about TV folk horror. Uh, as I mentioned before, I'm a big folk horror fan myself and it's a really interesting episode. Highly recommend you listen to it. Uh, and uh, one of the things that they highlighted was from an anthology series in the 70s. Uh, all the episodes were written by Nigel Neal. Uh, and it was a series called Beasts, and an episode of Beasts uh, called Baby, which is about, uh, uh, I think he's a vet, and his uh, wife, who's, who's pregnant, uh, they move to the countryside so she can... Um, have her baby. So she can, Well, have her baby in peace. There's a kind of suggestion that she, uh, um, she'd suffered a miscarriage in, in the past, and they discover this sort of mummified animal in the house, um, but it builds up to this climax or this moment which is kind of dated in terms of special effects but is so nightmarish and weird that um, you kind of have to see it to get the full effect of it. Mm. Um, And it involves sound and uh, psychological horror in in a really kind of intense way, so... Speaking of 70s folk horror and recommendations, uh, former or previous guest of this podcast, Morgan M. Page, recommended... Uh, it's, a, it's a TV movie called Pender's Fen oh, from yes. the 70s, yeah, yeah. which is just brilliant. Like, And dealing with internalised homophobia and sort of interesting stuff around queerness in this horror space and quite overtly i would say for the 70s just spectacular i mean there's the, the sort of demon imp thing there is a bit where the demon imp shags the boy mm-hmm. <laughs> and it does sort of look like something from through the dragon's eye like it's a <laughs> bit god bless it it's a bbc 70s budget for a tv movie about a queer kid so yeah. <laughs> but it is actually quite eerie and a very uh, I really liked it I really liked that now, hold the bus mentioning Through the Dragon's Eye <laughs> there was Nightmare Fuel um, so Through the Dragon's Eye was this BBC educational series and the, the, the villain of uh, this was a character called Charn who was basically like Sauron if he was made of like a dead vulture and a Dracula cape and uh, like Sauron if he was made by Blue Peter (laughs) (laughs) but he was really creepy he was but but I think that a a recurring thing for me is the creepiest thing about Sauron and it goes back to those beavers not Sauron uh, Chan Uh and it goes back to those beavers in uh, Narnia is that and a lot of Doctor Who monsters are like this is that you can see the real guy's yeah. eyes underneath yeah. um that freaks me out like the the early cybermen yeah. where you can see that they've got human hands and they've got something yeah. about that is eerier to me than like a, a, yeah. a cgi monster or like yeah a... there is that human element yeah it's almost like a plague doctor mask as well mm. isn't it like a kind of a beak and it, well i guess that's a sort of another human animal hybrid mm. creepiness as well 
Morris, Boris, and Doris. Morris, Boris, and Doris. <laughs> Three legends. Um, one the original sugar babes. <laughs> <laughs> Get them in the reunion. Um, one last uh, mention, I think, for, for for moments. We would be remiss not to at least mention Stranger Things. Uh, would we? Yes, we would. Uh, yeah, Ch- Stranger Things is a show that I genuinely like, right? Uh-huh. I genuinely like it, and I think the thing that it is really, really good at is character. Yeah. Because I love those characters. Mm-hmm. When I think about Stranger Things, I often think more about... The scene that I always think of, if I'm thinking of Stranger Things, is now different to the one it used to be, but it used to be the scene where... Oh, what's the little fat kid called? Uh, Dustin. 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 Uh, I can say that because I myself am a little fat kid. Um, when Dustin goes to the ice cream shop to meet Steve after he's been away all summer, and they do this like stupid sort of handshake thing, and it's just a like a really lovely reunion of friends, and then Steve's gal pal is like how many of your friends are children and it's just <laughs> lovely character i love uh-huh. that stuff yeah well conversely that sort of goes to show i think I, now when we think of uh the episode we've got this particular moment we'll talk about it in mind but yeah in terms of our previous like moment of stranger things if yours was that was the Dustin Steve sort of handshake thing with Robin chipping in? How many friends of your friends are kids? Mine was like the really uh, quite melodramatic, but uh, also intense and emotional scene where they pull what they think is Will's body out of the out of the lake or out of the river or wherever it is, the body of water, and it's actually it turns out to actually be like a a fake like it's a duplicate but it's like this big swelling it's peter gabriel's cover of heroes and then the kids are all seeing them pulling what they think is will's body out of the water and it's like ooh, i don't remember that at all yeah in the first season i don't remember that yeah because remember winona Ryder is cut up it's she's brilliant in it yeah. she's brilliant in it. that i do think god bless them but there are some characters in stranger things where i'm just like come on why are you still here uh Will's big brother being one of them. Oh, they had to give him a whole new friend to sort of make for, for the fact that he doesn't have a character. Yeah. But on on a spooky, ooky spooky horror Halloweeny note, uh, this most recent series of Stranger Things, so mm. season four, uh, has really leaned into the horror element. So we had a lot of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street influences, yes. uh, lots of. Um, Lots of kind of creepy elements, more so than than before. It's pure nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, yeah. That series, I think. Like he's Freddy. That. Yeah. So we have Vecna, who is this um, kind of just some twink, really, <laughs> a demon twink <laughs> who who, uh, who has. So the 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 moment, of course, is when he has um, uh, Max in his clutches, and she is saved through the power. Of Kate Bush yes. listening to Running Up That Hill. Do you know, though, that scene, like her, like floating in the air? I did see uh, on, I think I showed you this, it was on Twitter, like somebody has done that as like a Halloween oh, yeah. decoration outside their house, like a a, a a dummy of Max floating, which is fucking brilliant. It is way too, I need someone to do that in drag and somehow 
I don't know, give themselves the power of levitation to do a, a Kate Bush lip sync. Get those strings, get the Peter Pan strings, get them some... <laughs> But I think that, that image of her floating in the air is so, like, creepy and good. Uh-huh. But then it's, like, the bit afterwards where you get her in the sort of upside down with Vecner. Yeah sort of running to escape yeah. and going back to her friends. I I don't know why. It came up on YouTube, I think, when I was at home and I watched it. And my dad was there. And my dad, everything I watch, he just slags off. He thinks it's crap and stuff like that. Uh-huh. But he stood and watched it. Yeah. And he's like, what's this? And I was like, this is Stranger Things. Yeah. And he was like, oh, I've never seen it. And it's just like, I think there's something like inherent about it. Oh, yeah. And that's... I, taking this full circle in a in a way it's got as well as nightmare on elm street and, and freddie like max's escape as she's running through this sort of hellscape dimension um there was a little bit of hellraiser there um mm. but there was also a bit of labyrinth there was a bit of um of that 80s fantasy mm. uh a- adventure horror element that that I loved so much as a kid, that we both loved so much as a kid. So it it, it felt like a... It, obviously, Stranger Things as a series is very directly evoking things like that and things like, the, you know, Steven Spielberg and Stephen King and it, you know, Stand By Me and all these kind of things for that nostalgic hit. But I think that with the Escape from Vecna scene they've managed to hit the nail on the head of getting that sense of 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 magic there's a scale to that yeah it's interesting because i think there's a scale to that that for me the the sort of battle in the mall with the big Mm. monster doesn't it doesn't hit the same it's emotional stakes and, and it's emotional stakes but like even in that one like it's it's uh, Max's brother is being killed by the monster, yeah. but it still doesn't have the same. I don't know, but and also maybe it's what it's evoking as well because you go to like the 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 battle in the mall is chopping mall. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like what 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 80s film are we evoking? Although the thing that I think is funny about Stranger Things now, less funny, more horrendous, but. The fact that they've set up this, like, Russian thing and, like, sort mm. of... It was like a Cold War Russian mm-hmm. um, spies and espionage and stuff like that. It's slightly differently now that yeah. Russia is literally in a war with a European country. Mm-hmm. And feels weird. Uh, before we move on to our very special episode, I would like to give out a shout out to uh, an iconic spooky TV moment that I go back to again and again, which is just to give a little bit of flowers, dead flowers, dead black roses to Dragula. And it's the Cenobite Runway, which I think is the oh. first... Oh, the Cenobite Floor Show, sorry. <laughs> which is the first floor show from season two, I think. Yes. So it's got Victoria Elizabeth Black in the the amazing... Like, she, she basically has, like, a mask of her own face, yeah. which she's holding, and then she pulls it away and has a, like, a... a, a, a like no skin <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah like julia in hellraiser mm-hmm. just brilliant and that my favorite thing about that is that they win a signed copy of clive barker's book hellraiser. <laughs> which is a great prize that's a great prize that's a great prize 
Yeah, love, love Dragula. Do you have any Dragula moments that you want to shout out? Yes, uh, from the Resurrection special, um, Saints, Ghost, mm. look, which I think that alone got Saint the win for yes. for that episode because that was such a brilliant look. High fashion ghost. High fashion, so, but high fashion genuinely quite creepy and disturbing, but also a little bit trick-or-treat. Like, yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. It was so... Perfectly nailed, like, Halloween-y spookiness. The two that I want to shout out, just because we're talking about Dragula and I don't get to do that very often, um, is Landon Sider's Werewolf uh-huh. from the... I think that the runway is, like, sort of trick-or-treat Halloween... Floor show is trick-or-treat oh. <laughs> Halloween monsters. Um, and Landon Sider, this drag king, gets a werewolf. Uh-huh. And he does it as like a pup with like a leather pup mask mm-hmm. and is sniffing poppers and howling at the moon. And it's just, it's like hot and mm-hmm. weird. And the thing that Landon does really well, I think, as a lesbian woman, basically, but plays with gay male culture and yeah. like, sh- like sort of reflects gay male culture back at us yeah. in this interesting way. And the other one, which is just fucking disgusting, is Bitch Puddin's floor show it's her filth one um from the finale of season two when she's like a janitor and she's mopping the floor and she like takes the mop out and like starts soaking the dirty water of the mop and it's just bogging but actually brilliant as well yeah dragula good show watch it good time well they've got an all-star oh sorry titan Titan. series coming up soon (laughs) Anyway, and on that note, what is our very special episode? So, our very special episode for this episode is 1992's Ghost Watch. You're giving very evolution of horror. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wasn't sure if you wanted to do a separate episode because we've probably been talking for about three hours. No, no, these episodes can go on for five hours. It doesn't matter. Okay. So our very special episode is Ghost Watch. Yeah, which is, um, although it's it's kind of seen as a one-off thing, it's featured length, it's an hour and a half long. Uh, It was actually, in a way part of an anthology series mm. uh, because it was broadcast as uh, part of the Screen One series on the BBC. So it was Just a kind series of like play of, for the day. Kind of, but they did like a variety of different things with it. And what the hell is Ghost Watch for anyone who's never heard of it? <sighs> wow. It is, <laughs> it is, it's groundbreaking, it's infamous, and it is uh, possibly a horror TV goat. Yes. So it presents itself as a live broadcast uh, by the BBC uh, following a, a poltergeist haunting in, the, uh, in, in London uh, affecting a family, uh, a mother and two uh, kind of preteen girls. Um, and it's presented um, as, a, as a live TV special for Halloween, which is when it was broadcast. Um, presented by Michael Parkinson, along with uh, Sarah Green, Craig Charles, Mike Smith, so established BBC TV presenters that people would know from, you know, presenting factual programmes, um, essentially playing themselves, uh, doing this live broadcast from the house with in-studio segments, uh, and uh, as the night progresses, the haunting becomes increasingly 
real mm. uh, and starts to impact the whole of the country. Yeah. At one point. So I guess our experience of of Ghostwatch is slightly different to people who watched it at the time because we are obviously very young, yes, uh, like in the prime of our lives, the slip of our youths. Um, so we didn't watch it live. We didn't. Um, and so we did watch it using the very outdated uh, method. <laughs> this does of, age. Us this does age us. Um, remember when Netflix was like a a, a DVD. Um, like catalog they would send a dvd in the post post. yeah um so yeah we got the dvd it must have been like a region region zero it was they because the thing with ghost watch is it was it it was so like people a lot of people thought it was real yeah and it was it is i do think it's very scary for tv even post watershed and a lot they got a lot of complaints about it basically and the bbc have never shown it again that's right and it sort of was hidden away and like passed around on vhs's and things like that until they did i think a 20th anniversary um yes i think so or maybe it's a 10th anniversary but a dvd with like a quite a good documentary on it and uh yeah, I was about to say remastered. It is absolutely not remastered. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, to this day, I mean, it's not on BBC iPlayer, um, but it is on the Internet Archive, which is where we ended up watching it mm. last night to to review it. But yeah, I remember putting the disc in the DVD player, knowing, oh, this was something that was... I'd remembered it being talked about at the time mm. um, and, you know, had some sense of its legacy. So I thought, oh, well... Put this on it did come up on like um it would be like you know 100 scariest moments yeah. and things like that um uh, yeah just a an interesting thing it's like one of the, the one of the things that i'm obsessed with is that um it was so scary that like one of the newspapers at the time reported that four women had gone into labor four pregnant women had gone into labor mm-hmm. because they'd been so scared of watching it and i want to know where the ghost watch babies are now. <laughs> and, what, what, yeah. and I think we have to destroy them to get us onto the right timeline. Anyway, ghost watch. Ghost watch. So uh, in the in-studio segments at Parky, who actually... Oh, gives... don't call him Parky. You're not the son. Come on. All right, Michael Parkinson. Um, Mr. Parkinson. <laughs> Sir Michael Parkinson. Oh. <laughs> no. Right, hold uh, the bus. Michael Parkinson. Yeah, uh, but he gives uh, a really great performance i he think does. He's, he does he's actually a really good actor like given although he's you know doing his usual shtick um the things that he eventually has to react to he does so in a really kind of honest way um i was, so about, I was really taken in i was about to say for like people who are not from the uk but actually there will be a significant body of people who listen to this podcast who were not alive when Michael Parkinson's show was on. Well, so Michael Parkinson was like a uh, an interviewer. Basically, he had a talk show, uh, and he'd interview like Billy Connolly as one of his famous ones. Uh-huh. Um, you know, celebrities, posh, uh, posh and Bex. He did one of. He did. Um, she, he does that sort of infamous one with Meg Ryan, uh, where I think he's in the wrong, just for the record, but uh, not an actor, but with a but with a presence and a career and a legacy that he kind of maybe is putting on the line with something like this. I I do wonder why he said yes to it. Yes, but 
I think it it wouldn't have worked if you didn't have somebody with that gravitas and who was so uh, connected with actual factual programming. Mm. The whole the reason why it was so controversial um, was that it did appear to be a live broadcast. Now, although there was kind of credits at the start and credits at the end, which kind of signified that it was. Uh, you know, a, a drama essentially, and that it was broadcast in this screen one slot. So, you know, you would expect it to be a piece of fiction. Um, it felt so real. It looked so real. And because you had these uh, people that were so connected with uh, you know, Sarah Green being a, mm. a, a children's TV presenter that also did other kind of factual uh, programming as well. Uh, people that you would see every day and not associate with them with this sort of fictional horror context that um, and she's, made it all the more impactful. She's in it with Mike Smith, who is her husband. Her real-life husband, the, yeah. At the time, or yeah. still? Um, and again, Sarah Green is great in this. Like, she does really well. Yes. The, the thing that I think really works about it when we rewatched it, what I think really works about it is I think the first, through the first quarter at least or the first third is almost boring yeah it's all waffle it's just it is just it, it is like padding and it makes it feel more real it doesn't it feels like a real thing like yeah you've got craig charles sort of running around outside jumping out of cupboards with a mask on and stuff yeah. just to like and like admitting in the show in this sort of world of the show that is like the producer told me to do that yeah. to spice it up a bit. <laughs> yeah, and then you've got like Sarah Green, kind of like, oh, here's an infrared camera. This is how this works, and it, you know, there's nothing actually scary going on, but it's it it does feel like it is that padding that you would get in a live broadcast that was trying to do something like this, um, and it does lull you into a false sense of security in a way. Yes, um, and then when gradually uh, you do start to see the ghost. Who's uh, called? Who's called Pipes? Pipes. Um, because he makes the pipes. He makes the pipes rattle, rattle and bang. Yeah, it makes it all, all the more scary, and it makes you question what you're seeing as well because it is just fleeting glimpses. Taking it back to back to Mike Flanagan, it's like the hidden ghosts mm. in, in Hill House, and um, it's very effective. Really like... effective. So. In studio with Michael Parkinson, you have a, a parapsychologist called uh, Dr. Lynn Pascoe, who's sitting there in her pumpkin spice, uh, dusty tangerine fantasy, uh, with her footage of uh, of the bedroom that's uh, of the of the haunted house. Um, incidentally, I think it's great that they are using um, this sort of urban, you know, suburban house as the setting for this rather than it being a, a gothic mansion yeah. or well that's what makes it lines. it's the Enfield post poltergeist yeah. isn't it it's or the Essex poltergeist as well like that kind of i mean it's clearly based on those cases yeah. um the thing that didn't work on that on that doctor though she's the one she's not bad god bless her she's a good actor but she's an actor and yeah. you can feel her acting. <gasps> I'm acting yeah. as Tammy Brown. Yeah. The thing is, it's it's really it's really well written and really well directed. Written by Stephen Folk, directly by directed by Leslie Manning. Um but there are elements where you see the hand a little bit much. So there's a whole scene where they bring on like another sort of skeptic 
this American kind of skeptic, they do like a video link to Emilio Silvestri, he's called. Um, <laughs> and he and uh, and Dr. Lynn Pascoe have like a bit of a, a, a tiff with each other on air. And it's just, a, it just veers that little bit too much into this isn't a real conversation, yes. this is scripted. Yes. Um, and that sort of breaks the breaks the spell breaks the illusion a bit the, the stuff that does really work in that like uh, when i was watching when we were watching it again that i really liked is so they have like cameras set up around the house uh-huh. which everything that's in the start of it is paid off by the end it's really nice they're Chekhov's cameras uh-huh. um Chekhov's hidden cameras but there's hidden cameras all around the house um so that means that they'll cut back to cameras for things like um, the youngest girl, like, uh, is having a conversation with uh, Sarah Green about, like, oh, I've drawn a picture of pipes. Yeah. And then she, like, runs to the cabinet to take it out. But you get them kind of running around the house and the yeah. kids are like, I need a drink and stuff like that, which is yeah. very real. real. Uh-huh. Like, it feels... Like a lived-in family house. Yeah, and the, <laughs> there's the bit as well which, you know, when she does draw that picture of pipes and she gives it to Sarah Green and she, like, whispers to her, it's a present. Like, yeah, the, yeah. Her little, just little touches like sort that. Sort of weird. And it's a shit picture, God bless <laughs> <laughs> A shit picture of the genuinely of a genu- very <laughs> scary and disturbing um, pipes. Mm. Uh, so pipes... Uh, is uh, a, a a bald man with no eyes uh, and kind of blood and scratches on his face in uh, what's described as like a, a buttoned up black dress, um, and we see she's one of the girls. She's, she's she, one of the, she dolls. Is the diva doll. Pipes. <laughs> um, and pipes, it turns out, is is supposedly the 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 ghost or this evil spirit of. Um, a, a copycat killer essentially so uh someone who was influenced by this baby farmer called mother siddons um who was active in the area years and years prior um and then this uh this guy that was a, a child killer in uh in tribute to mother siddons um died and was eaten by his cats. Yeah, I mean, some of it you just have to go with it. <laughs> became but, uh, became pipes. But it also feels like urban myth. Yeah. Like, like sort of, it feels like the sort of stories, like that sort of Mother Siddons and pipes and stuff, feels like the sort of stories we would tell at school. Yeah. Like, oh, there was a, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and the, the one bit of this that I was like, what the fuck? fuck is this i couldn't remember is when craig charles is like outside just like like he's literally filling time talking uh-huh. to the people outside who've come to see this ghost um and one of the hidden pipes is is in that moment yeah. as well but he goes to this little like park little like play park with these two women one of whom is scottish and wearing a shell suit and she's amazing <laughs> um she's the girl that like when our gay movie coven get together to watch she's the girl we'd love Oh yeah. Um, so they go to this park and then like these two women tell this story about like one of their kids finding a dead Labrador with uh its belly cut open and it was pregnant and there was fetuses everywhere. Yeah. And it's like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, <laughs> like... yeah, yeah, yeah. But again it's sort of 
it is kind of connected to the the lore around pipes and, mm. and mothersons and all this stuff as well. But um, but I think that also pulls in some of the satanic panic yeah, stuff yeah. actually, which would have been happening just before. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's, it's it is interesting that um, Sarah Green, when she's first kind of introducing the house and the family, um, she makes a specific point about there's violence in London every day. But in this household, maybe the family would be happier being out in the street than in this house. Mm. And I think there was something really odd about that. But it feels like that, a real thing that, that people would say on as the well. BBC. Yeah, um, yeah. There's, and again, I think there's a there's a grittiness to Ghost Watch. They they could have done a drama which was, you know, doing all this, you know, pretending that it's an actual live broadcast, a live recording or whatever, from, you know, your spooky Victorian mansion or even like an asylum or, you, you know, a, 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 or a graveyard or something like that, something that's traditionally Halloween-y and, and, and gothic. But I think that it really taps into this urban like paranoia and mm. but crossed with folk horror and cr- like it it brings this real different sensibility to it yes. which i think gives it that added heft i think there's something about that family as well i think their performances are really good like oh, yeah. to get those performances out of child actors is pretty impressive um especially in the circumstances like i always wonder how they get on with having kids oh yeah in horror stuff um, how they get on with kids how they get on with having kids in horror stuff um, but those two kids are brilliant but there's something about that family as well where they do just look normal yeah. they they actually do look like the girls from the Enfield Haunting yeah. like that there's a um, Enfield Haunting was like a poltergeist um, story case, um, yeah. from the I guess the 70s I think so yeah it was in so Ed and Lorraine Warren uh, got involved oh, at yes, one point. So they did. So they, they adapted the story of the Enfield Poltergeist into The Conjuring 2. They took a lot of sort of liberties with it. It's, you know, quite different, but that's where that story came from as well. And it, But it feels like that sort of very domestic house and those girls, it's all the hair. It's the Forever Friends poster yeah. on the wall and Jason yeah. Donovan and stuff. Yeah, and as well as that, what's interesting with between that and the sort of little paper Halloween decorations and stuff mm. in the kitchen, the house is quite busy looking, and I think that makes the hidden pipes moment. So you see mm. fleeting glimpses of pipes like standing by curtains or like reflecting reflected in a window, and because there's so much like not clutter, but like there's stuff in the house, it's not like it's an empty sterile environment mm. where you your eye would be immediately drawn to something. It helps to, um, it helps create this effect where you're questioning what you're seeing. Please give Pipes her title, the Diva Doll the herself. Diva doll herself pipes. Pipes. Um, but yeah, so the most effective instance of that, I think, or not maybe not the most effective, but like a key uh, moment, if I was to pick one out from Ghostwatch, is where. Dr. Lynn Pascoe uh, asks them to show this 
clip of mm. footage from the bedroom and the first and they play it multiple times so the first time that they play it you can see the shadowy figure of pipes in the bedroom as dr limpasco was talking about it um he's like in the curtain he's he's standing at the curtains but it's not not entirely clear but it's like you you your eye spots it and registers it then she says oh can we roll that footage again please and then they play it but pipes isn't there the second time it's so clever but she goes you know they give her this thing with the pointer to ask her to draw an outline pipes isn't there but there's a sort of little bit of you know dust or whatever on the curtain that she kind of highlights is oh that maybe this is what people are thinking Mm. is is pipes and then at a later point they roll the footage again and you can see pipes so it's 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 training you to doubt what you're seeing yes but also to look for things so the you you get this description of pipes so you know what you're looking for Mm. this tall figure in black with a a bald head and a skull-like face um and then your eye kind of catches you know there was a point where i saw like a banister and i was like oh is that pipes no it's not pipes it's a banister <laughs> do you know what i mean but it, it it is really good at that whole sort of sleight of hand yes um i agree i i think it is that that it's a, it's training you to do it and to doubt it yeah. and i do think that you think you think about it in the context of how you were watching TV at the time, so 1992. And again, they did not play this ever again on BBC. Yeah. You you wouldn't be able to get this on video, so you've seen it once. And I think it, but I think it sticks in the memory. Oh, this yeah. this this yeah, especially that that scene, which I do think is the like iconic scene, the yeah. pipes and the curtain thing. Um, one of the really nice bits, though, again, on the doubting thing side, is that you get a moment where, and I think this is drawn from the Enfield haunting story, you get a moment where, like, the older sister is caught yeah. banging on the pipes, basically, yeah. um, sort of faking uh-huh. the activity because it's not happening. And I do think that's, I mean, that's such a huge part of, like, poltergeist law yeah. that it's like it's almost hysteria that's mm-hmm. causing it um but i i like that bit a lot but also um dr pasco kind of explains she says well what's likely happened is that there was real phenomenon but now that the cameras are kind of trained on it the girls are thinking we we need you know they're feeling the pressure to have we something to give, evidence, them, a show, to, to baby. give them a show baby <laughs> like <laughs> um so there is that element as well um but i like that they sort of puncture the 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 building tension a little bit with you do have like moments of levity and Mm. some are some are quite on the nose like you've got a call because they're doing a phone in you've got a caller that says oh i've got a cheese and pickle sandwich that moved by itself or something along Mm. those lines and michael parkins is right thank you very much see you later but (laughs) my favorite one of those because it's not so directly stupid is um there's a guy that starts telling this story uh, and he's like, oh, and uh, and of all things, my mackerel was covered in saliva. <laughs> my mackerel was covered in spit. And it's like, what? <laughs> and it's quite surreal. And it's like a little bit, it's, it is stupid, but it kind of cuts the, it does. the seriousness a, a bit. 
I think that though, and this is so like niche and so bringing in your own stuff, but I have seen the clip so many times of when Five Star are on like going live or whatever, and it's that phone in thing. Uh-huh. A, a very like that phone in was a very nineties BBC thing. Yeah. So I, I always remember Hanson being on one of those on Live and Kicking, and like being like we're talking on fake phones on the tv like this isn't even fucking plugged in um but the five star were on going live and somebody phones in and i think it's philip schofield is like why uh what do you want to ask five star and then the boy is like i just want to ask five star why you're so fucking shit <laughs> okay elliot what's your question i'd like to ask five star where they're so fucking crap they're fucking thanks very much elliot and i thought they were going to do something uh, like that with the Parkinson bit, yeah. but they didn't. Well, Mr. Trick kind of, there, old ghost one. <laughs> well, I think that's it. I think that whole cheese and pickle like that was mm. supposed to be like a bit of a wind up, the cheese and pickle sandwich. I, but... th- I think it's because when real people do that, they go yeah. weirder and further than that. Yeah, I suppose. But I, I, again, it all ties in with it making it feel real. Yes. Um, and that there is a bit of sort of stupid shit. And also unintentional humour. But um, so where where it turns out Pipes is uh, based in terms of his location in the house is this room that's been boarded up where the father <gasps> yes. of the family used to develop his, his photographs, apparently. It just all seems a bit strange that this is tied in. But they've like boarded it up. They've put like an additional door with a crack in it. Um, and you know the youngest daughter says, "Oh, I've I've seen pipes uh, through the cracks," and you know there's a whole spooky bit. And then Sarah's like, "Oh, this this glory hole is the centre of paranormal activity in the house." Uh, and then of course Eric Green ends up getting sucked through the glory hole. Sucked through the glory hole. Oh, God. So. Oh my gosh. I do think Sarah Green is brilliant in this. Yeah, I think really I think is. her. One of the things I really like about her presence is that they so they take the mum out of the house. Uh-huh. And that Sarah Green, like this children's TV presenter who who has this nice kind of maternal quality. Yeah. And it's again, it's those like small moments. It's like when she sort of puts the little girl to bed and kisses her on the head and stuff yeah. like that. And it's just like, it's sweet and it feels real. And it then you buy it later yeah. on when she's like looking for the girls in the house. Yeah, absolutely. The other iconic scare from this, I think, is as we get towards the end, what Lynn Pascoe says um, that that doing this on TV has caused a national seance. Yes, um, and we've like invoked pipes and brought him forward. I guess, um, and there's this sort of iconic spooky moment of the girls in the living room. And the older girl has been, like, possessed by Pipes. And she's talking with the, like, deep, guttural voice. Which is, I found out, is the director. Ah. Um, Because they originally hired a a voiceover uh, actor to do the voice, but it didn't quite have the right quality for it. Mm. So the director dubbed it, apparently. It's it's nice. It's, like, very sort of exorcist-y. Yeah, I think it goes a little bit too far. It doesn't quite match up. The lip sync doesn't quite match up. She did not win this week's lip sync. She's going to sashay Yeah, she's going to sashay away. But um, I think it just goes a little bit too much into that territory for it to to work in in the rest of it. I think it's a creepy image, though. It it does work for me. And then 
And then... Uh, Pipes manages, through this national seance, manages to take over the whole TV studio um, where where Michael Parkinson's presenting. Just before that, though, the re- the bit that I think is really creepy is when Lynn points... So there's been a bit where like stuff is flying around and yeah. the picture falls off the wall and stuff like that. And then they're sitting in the studio, Parkinson and Lynn Pascoe, and she's looking at the, the TVs on the wall and she's like, wait a minute... The picture's still there on the on the living room yeah. wall. And she's like, Pipes has taken over yeah. this and he's showing us footage from earlier in the evening. Yes. It's creepy. It's yeah, creepy. That's really creepy. Yeah, because there's that break. So things like build up at the house. Uh, you don't know what's going on. It, the camera's cut. Um, and then it's like, oh, we'll resume n- normal broadcast. And then when they do, it looks like everything's okay. But then, like you say, they find out that's actually footage from earlier that's being re-shown. Mm. Um, and that, again, ties in with the idea of footage being played over and different things happening. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's great. So then, of course, the whole TV studio get, ends up getting taken over. There's bits of paper flying around, lightings exploding and all sorts. <laughs> uh, and Although... Just, again, jumping back a little bit. Uh-huh. The other bit that I thought was very, very effective. So they set up the infrared camera at the start. Oh, yes, yeah. And then you get this bit where you go back to the house and Sarah Green's in the house with only the infrared camera. Yeah. Um. So she's looking around and she finds the... Um. Oh, no, it's like the, the, the cameraman finds her and she's like... Um, because it's like, because she's warm in this place, mm-hmm. you see her as this red figure, and they're like looking for the girls, and it's it's just like again, it's like, because your brain has been trained to find things yeah. in this it's like, you find the plug on the wall, which is obviously hot, or something yeah. like that, and it's like, oh, what is that? But then they, so then they find the girl, but then that's when Sarah Green gets sucked into the glory hole, yeah. I think. Oh, because the girl is, like, behind the door. That's why, Or, like, yeah. or, or Pipes is pretending to be the girl behind the door, and that's why Sarah Green goes in. That's right, yeah. And then this TV studio gets taken over. And then we have Michael Parkinson wandering around confused, <laughs> slowly uh, going... F- uh, definitely going off script, starting to... Uh, oh, she's... <laughs> <laughs> starting to recite nursery rhymes uh, and uh, round and round the garden like a teddy bear. It's so creepy. It is really creepy. And then eventually, of course, he starts speaking in Pipes's voice about Mother Siddons. Uh, and then it, the camera's cut out. Cut to black. Cut and to you black. get the credits. And it was all a bloody hoax, wasn't it? All a bloody hoax. <laughs> um, I do think this is such a brilliant bit of TV writing. It's so like playful with the medium and so ahead of its time oh, yeah. i think yeah we've seen you know we've we've seen it, it, it it's a legacy in uh Darren brown was obviously very influenced by mm. it and i think that sort of suggestion that it's doing um and, and that whole sleight of hand thing was something that was very influential to him mm. and he did his se- seance yes. um special which was uh kind of indebted to, to Ghost Watch. But there was also the Inside Number 9 episode, uh, Deadline. Yes, Halloween. Is that was it called, Deadline? Live Halloween episode, yes, yeah. yes. Let's not talk too much about that, because I do have an Inside Number 9 special coming oh, right. this week. 
but yes, it is very influential on that. But I think you can see it in like found footage. Like, oh yeah, yeah. It's 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 paranormal activity. It's mm-hmm. um, even the Blair Witch and stuff like that. Like yeah, uh, I, guess. I, I think it, it's it's legacy. Do you know, actually, I hadn't really thought about it, but Mother Siddons and the Blair Witch, uh, there's a very, there is a similarity. They're there two gals. They're good together. Sorry, I'm inventing the whole sort of Babadook uh, Pennywise, Pennywise yeah. relationship. They're my new lesbian couple, oh Mother Siddons God. and the Blair Witch. But yeah, I think it's legacy. You can see it in stuff like that, and it's almost that like, and and then then I think the new one is the like desktop drama, like host, the the Shudder special from lockdown. I guess so, but um, I think that there is something just re- even in that you that there is a, a a feel of the fiction there, like you can mm. kind of see that that's well, it's because they're using recognizable figures, yeah. and there's something about the TV presenter being this sort of they're like a stand-in friend aren't they yeah. they're like they have a presence that like some random actor yeah. that you've never heard of won't have yeah. um and i don't think i've ever known until sort of the inside number nine one i don't think i've ever known anyone to sort of do that yeah. and play themselves sure there, there must be other examples but but ghost watch was clearly groundbreaking that in that regard deeply controversial in that regard and I, that's why i don't think we'll ever see anything quite on that scale no. like that again no because because the, the the line that they always use is that they said before it was part of screen one it was a drama yeah. uh, and the credits are on the start like the, it says written by yeah. at the start and then they roll at the end but that people did think it was real and they were like phoning the line and stuff like yeah. that and I, it is strange when you look back and, you know, sorry, this is a, a, a bit of a, a a deep and dark take on it. But, mm. you know, you would get things like the War of the Worlds broadcast, um, the Orson Welles War of the Worlds uh, on the radio where people thought there was an actual alien invasion. Mm. Um, and then you had something like Ghostwatch. Um, but you do wonder in this age of... Uh, of misinformation, disinformation, and and all this kind of thing, would a piece of entertainment that plays with audiences, mm. um, you know, perception of what is real and what is fiction, you, you know, does that have the same appeal today as it as it would have done in the past? I think people are. I think audiences are maybe a bit more savvy now. Definitely uh-huh. a bit more sort of uh, because of things like this are just sort of more wary of stuff like that but then yeah you're right like actually people don't believe what's on the actual fucking news at this point mm. so would they get would they get into this maybe they yeah I, I i think something like this would actually be slightly dangerous now maybe yeah, who knows who knows and round and round the garden like a teddy bear Oh my god, I hate it. Yes, so Ghostwatch, the greatest spooky episode of all time, we're saying. Or one of, one of. One of, definitely. Uh, And hopefully we'll be back again for another... I think I'd like to do this again, like with maybe a different uh, genre of TV at some point. Ooh. Yeah, uh, wait and see. Oh, the one thing we haven't talked about that I did want to kind of chat about was the Halloween special of tv series okay 
um, which we should have covered in the start, but let's just talk about it now. Because I just wanted to give like a little bit of time for the Roseanne. I know she's problematic. <laughs> she's the spookiest thing of this. Like, we don't just pretend that people don't exist. Pretending problematic people doesn't exist doesn't help. Um, Roseanne was good. That show was brilliant. It 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 still deserves its place in the in the sun. But the the Roseanne Halloween special where DJ wants to dress up as a witch and John doesn't want him to is also the same special where Roseanne dresses up as John and goes to meet him at the bar and then they kiss and people think they're a gay couple and it's just beautiful. It's got so much of the stuff that I react to in a... Mm. Uh, the like gendery stuff, um, but then the Buffy Halloween specials I think are also brilliant. <coughs> uh, namely, Halloween. The I think ha- of the Buffy Halloween episodes, I think uh, ha- the OG season two Halloween is, is is the best. Yes, it has all the elements. It has so the the conceit of it is that people become their costumes, mm-hmm. and it's because Giles's boyfriend Ethan Rain has uh, not his official boyfriend but it's definitely there it's subtextual right they went to boarding school together um Giles's ex-boyfriend Ethan Rain rocks up in town and has sort of invoked Janus to get people to turn into their costumes and Buffy becomes like she's dressed up as what she thinks Angel will want like this mm-hmm. sort of uh what do you call it like a sort of noble woman yeah. like a sort of almost like a Marie Antoinette figure mm. uh, she does have the spookiest thing in the episode is Sarah Michelle Gellar trying to do an English accent well, is that? but uh, my favourite thing about it is that Willow is dressed as a ghost like a sort of sheet ghost but that Buffy tried to get Willow to... I don't really know what she's supposed to be dressing Yeah, well, as. she was like... She has, a, like, a sexy outfit underneath. Like, I don't know whether it was, like... I don't know, dressed as a sex worker? Like, what, like, you know, in that very kind of late 90s way. It, it's It's very... Uh, lingerie and animal ears, yeah. like Which is what Cordelia is wearing. Yeah. Um so Willow is dressed in this sexy outfit and then she puts the sheet over the top because she's too shy. Uh-huh. But then when she turns into her costume, she becomes a ghost. And the just the, the scene I love in that is when Giles is in the library sort of sorting books and stuff and Willow walks through the wall and he like just throws his... his papers around like like this good like stupid scare uh-huh. and then willow's bit is like i'm a i'm we're turning giant. into our costumes uh i was, I was a go- i'm a ghost i was a ghost i, I was a ghost and i'm a ghost the ghost of what exactly <laughs> just, just brilliant just brilliant and we are yeah. still asking the ghost of what exactly um so yeah i just always like to talk about buffy um not the scariest buffy episodes though the what, halloween ones what is the scariest buffy episode so hush gets a lot of limelight and gets a lot of love for uh being a scary episode not going to contradict that. Uh, the gentlemen are the, the, gentlemen are. The, the, the scariest thing from Buffy, I think. The way they move. It's Doug Jones, right? One of the... Uh, yes, I think so. The yeah. main gentleman is Doug Jones. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so there are two episodes I want to give a shout out. And both of them uh, involve Joyce in a, in a major mm. role. Uh, one of which is uh, Conversations with Dead People. And there's a segment where Dawn 
I, I, almost a bit like Ghostwatch, is being uh, menaced in the home by an evil spirit. Mm. Is it? Is it? Is it the first? Be, like... uh, so they're all they're all the first, basically. Yeah. Uh, so Buffy is visited by a vampire. Uh-huh. Of oh, or Buffy meets this vampire of uh-huh. a guy that she went to school with. Yeah, that's but the rest scary. of them are the visited by the first, yeah. um, the first evil who's who's trying to. But there is debate with the Dawn one over whether that is the first or whether it is Joyce. Mm. Well, I don't think it's Joyce, but it's like a, it's a it's a, a there's a really creepy image of a dead Joyce sort of white-eyed on, on the couch. In the way that she out, was in the body. It, uh, calling out for, for help, kind of screaming out while she's being, like, menaced by this shadowy evil figure. And it's, and, and it's Gnarl from an earlier episode in season, season seven, like this sort of golem-looking yeah. demon, painted black. Yeah, <laughs> but it's because you only see it for a fleeting second. It's brilliant. And there's a lot of build up and spookiness uh, actually there's three that in- involve Joyce three scary moments so there's that on a similar note there's Forever uh, which is the episode immediately after the body where Joyce Buffy's mother dies Buffy and Dawn's mum and Dawn tries to bring her back with a sort of monkey's paw type situation oh, yes, spell yes. and then there's the gradual build up of as dead Joyce uh, is walking, past, is the walking past the curtains and you don't ever see her uh, and you, you you never see her, but that's always kind of spooked me a bit. That kind of mm. dread of seeing uh, somebody that comes back like that. So that's spooky. Uh, and the other one, uh, which I don't think really gets its flowers, but I think it really made an impact on me when I I first watched Buffy as a, as a teenager was uh, Helpless, which yes. is in season three. Um, and in that episode, it's scary on a number of levels. Um, so Buffy loses her powers uh, as a slayer and she's trapped in this house. She gets locked in this house with this essentially sort of serial killer vampire um, who also menaces Joyce. He was a serial um, killer before he was a vampire. Before he was a vampire, yeah. And he's um, he's just a really nasty character. It's, it's a, a creepy episode anyway. But then it also turns out that the reason why Buffy's lost her powers is because uh, the Watchers Council drugged her, uh, and it's a test. It's all, all a test. So they've put her life in danger. To... They've taken away. They've taken away her powers to see yeah. if she's still got what it takes to be a slayer. Yeah, and this is you know the Watchers Council and the Watchers are supposed to be this authority figure that looks after, but are kind of cares and mentors and mm. uh, supervises the slayer, and it's this betrayal. And this like deeply horrific way of betraying Buffy that yeah. really sat with me. And it, and it's Giles. It's Giles yeah. that does it. And it's Giles yeah. that, that she blames and she should. And yeah, yeah. the patriarchy. The patriarchy. So- the As you can tell, between that and the demon headmaster, I have a real issue with male authority figures. That's it. (laughs) But lady authority figures, which is bring them on, vampires. (laughs) Honey, make a puppet out of me. I'll have a rap battle with it. Love them, love them. 
where can people find you? You're not you're not an internet gal, uh, so no. where can people find you? Where do you want to be found? If you want to find me, send Michael a DM. And oh. then he will reveal it. I'll remain a mystery until then. Whisper it into the wind and That's you might it. find it. Uh, and on that note, happy Halloween, everybody. Please don't hold a national seance on live TV. Let's do one next episode. <laughs> Bye. Bye. And there we go, hello it's me again, Michael's robot assistant, here to tell you that the next very spooky episode will be an Inside Number 9 special with screenwriter and spooky legend Dave O'Gray where we'll be talking about the riddle of the S Sphinx and the Inside Number 9 Halloween special in the meantime stay spooky and don't touch Watching television, watching television